Okay, I am here with the rest of the trio from the Regenerative po- uh, Landscapes podcast. So as always, uh, we'll check in with the guys and see what everybody's been up to for the last little bit, because there's, uh, there's been a lot going on, I think. So we'll start with uh, Dan, I guess. What have you been up to? Uh, <laughs> not much. <laughs> what? Just keeping to myself, seeing all the crazy weather things happening around the world and yeah it's <laughs> yeah it's something uh, especially all that flooding in bc that's crazy all that stuff that's happening now yeah i think I, mean, I think that'll be one of the things we talk about today for sure because it's uh, definitely at the forefront of the news Oof. yeah um yeah in terms of things happening around here yeah not too much i mean finally Starting to feel <laughs> more like winter, even though it is still pretty warm. Even today, it's like plus two or something. So yeah, stuff's uh, melting like crazy here. But, yeah, uh, but uh, did a whole bunch of Christmas setup stuff around the house. So that's uh, kind of got me in the mood and starting to plan out all the Christmas gifts and baking and all that fun stuff. You're one of those people. Oh no! <laughs> what planning? Planning we ahead. Have- we, we can't even get into the moon and get started with everything going on. I don't know, but <laughs> we're trying. So. Well, at least I didn't do it the day after Halloween. I at least gave it a month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I believe you should wait until after Remembrance Day. Just, you know, have some respect. Otherwise, it's just everybody mishmashes up their holidays and then they're not paying attention to the current one at hand. So, yeah. But anyway. Yeah, well, good for you if you're getting decorating and gifts and things going on. Because, yeah, we're just having trouble getting into the mood. I mean, at least it's snowed now, so that's something. But, ah, there's just so many other things. But anyway, and uh, how about you, Kevin? What have you been up to? Good timing. I just finished my breakfast sandwich. We were trying to delay so we could because I I heard you (laughs) munching away. (laughs) Oh, you you could hear that earlier? (laughs) Yeah. Sound like you're having, what, a cereal? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a Beyond Me sandwich. Oh, okay. It was crunchy. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm turning into a vegetarian. No, I'm just kidding. I'll never be a vegetarian. I'll die. I'd rather die before I become a vegetarian. <laughs> Every day I have to have meat. Otherwise, I just feel like the life is not whole. The day is not complete <laughs> without having some meat. Yeah. Well, you just got high but, metabolism. You need the protein. <laughs> yeah. But, um... No, not really. It's like I didn't really do much other than just work my day job. And hopefully one day the day job can be like the part-time job and like the business can just take take off yeah, just next year. Wean, wean out but, of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but whatever, whatever it takes to get through the winter and early spring. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's just boring. It's just nothing. It's nothing <laughs> exciting. It was like the, I, I think last time I talked to you guys, it was a long time ago, right? Like a month ago. So between uh, back and back and now it's like uh, a month. We went through what? 
uh, American Thanksgiving, Black Friday. I didn't even buy anything for Black Friday. How boring is that? Like, I see so much stuff going on sale, nothing. I know. Steve looked, and then he, at the end, he's like, ah, there's actually nothing I really want or need. And I was like, are you sick? Because <laughs> he's always, being the tech guy, he's always, oh, Black Friday, got to get something. So Yeah, nothing, nothing. I think all the companies, they just want to make more money this year. That's why they are not going to, mm-hmm. they didn't pop up like a good sale. Yeah, it wasn't as it wasn't as big of a deal this year, I don't think. There's other things they were worrying about, you know. So Yeah. And now with the new uh Omicron variant, who knows what's gonna right. happen next. Yeah, they still don't know enough about other than we we've had our first case in Alberta now. So it's not just Canada, it's here, but whether it's more contagious, worse, better, like I don't know yet, right? We'll have to see what comes out of that, but Yep. God, I'm getting to the point where I just don't care anymore. <laughs> I, well, I think that's <laughs> today's Omicron variant. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. The oopsie doopsie variant. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's like, uh, and that's I, unfortunately that's part of the problem, right? Is people are just getting so numb to it, and the numbers aren't meaning anything to people anymore. They're like, yeah, every, it sounds bad, but everyday people are dying. Everyday people are in hospitals, and everyday there's people wandering around that get it and recover, and they're fine, or or doing other things. So they're just like, you know, it is what it is. So let's just get on our weather lives, right? And it's it's tough because had we done more earlier, right at the beginning, like the New Zealand thing or whatever, um, it might not be this way. But now it is what it is. So I'm not sure what the answer even is anymore, right? So, but um, anyway, I guess the what will be will be. So <clears throat> anyway. All right. Well, um, geez, I'm the weird one, I guess, because I've been so busy. <laughs> it's like I've, we've been doing a lot of stuff. So I've got, um, I've been starting to do my artwork again. So um, I get to actually get my first dis- official display hung probably next week uh, in a local business. So that'll be nice. And where, where? Cool. I want to go see. I'm, I'm going to support you. Are you going to go get signatures and stuff? Yeah, I'll do a signing or something. Ooh, yeah. Um, actually, it's kind of cool. It's a local business in Stony Plain um, called Furniture First. There, they got a free plug for us. Um, but what they do is, this is why I liked uh, building a relationship with them, is they support other local businesses. They also support ecologically friendly materials, um, local materials, that kind of thing. So a lot of their um, wood design furniture is made with uh, local woods, like from Alberta, BC, and local woodworkers doing the, doing the work. Um, even their, their beds and other furnishings that they bring in um, that are commercially made, they opt to get ones that are more ecologically friendly, like they've got beds that are um, stuffed with sheep wool and ones that um, are made with renewable, uh, like there's one there's one bed line, I think, that's um, made from recycled plastics from the ocean uh, and that kind of stuff. So I was like, this is really cool. So I really like that. So yeah, we're going to see how that goes. Um, and then uh, I've been working on the teas. So we finally got the wild teas packaged and some things going there. Um, I'm just about finished a, a three-dimensional advent calendar for them to go out. So that'll be kind of cool. Um, and uh, I know not everybody out there is is for hunting and that kind of thing. And 
we'll probably explain more of it when we get into the fencing um, topic in another episode or so. But there is an ecological reason for uh, humane, ethical hunting. Um, and we actually lived some of that last weekend because uh, we got some some uh, deer. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll explain that another time. But yeah, in the meantime, yes, we've been uh, getting some venison or whatever for the freezer because we do not hunt for trophies. We hunt to feed ourselves and we do it sustainably. So we pick and choose which ones we're getting and how and all the rest of that. And yeah, other than that been working on trying to promote the business um i'm looking forward to cross my fingers we've got some meetings lined up for next week um ironically one of them is because of all the flooding in in bc uh they can't get plants from their regular suppliers out in bc so um i'm hoping that maybe i can help them out and fill the gap so i guess on that note that kind of brings me to probably uh, one of our first topics for our green scene. And so if it's okay with you guys, I will actually start by this uh, hot topic with the, the BC floods and such going on out there. Um, Let's do it. Yeah. So first of all, um, it's good to see our home-based celebrities um, taking part and, and getting on board with doing whatever they can to support the cause because the the instant uh, thing to deal with is helping the people that have lost their homes or they're struggling with their business and their livestock and just everything. Uh, cause this hits home with me. I was in the floods of 2013 down South in the foothills there. I was in black diamond when it flooded and we were cut off from everybody else for three weeks because of no power, uh, the bridges being washed out, et cetera, et cetera. So I totally understand and feel for these people. Um, so yes, I, I don't know if you guys have seen Ryan Reynolds, uh, doing some uh, promoting of uh, people donating and helping out because he's he's from BC himself originally. So that's kind of cool. And then uh, my my first article, I guess, or actually it's, it's probably a combination because both of them are saying a lot of the same things. Um, so there's an article from Global News and another one from CBC, uh, both good, reliable Canadian news sources. So going back in history a little bit um i mean a lot of people know that the present reason the 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 main reason why this has all happened is that uh huge dump of uh precipitation they call it an atmospheric river so it's 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 not a real river but basically up in the sky the the moisture comes along and it drops a phenomenal amount of precipitation in a short period of time along this Sky River kind of thing path, um, but prior to that, wondering why that happened uh, again, as we were talking about in other episodes, some of these things they're going to happen cyclically or randomly or whatever uh, on a on a you know so many years basis or or whatever anyway because that's part of our natural cycle, right? But again, da -da -da, everything's connected. Going back to the um, the whole thing with the climate change now everything's sped up and doing it faster and more and, yeah, and it's, more places yeah, it's happening more frequently right? so because of that part uh, mother nature doesn't have time to recuperate in between and things are happening more frequently and it's it's getting harder to juggle and try to fix things right so 
a big part of this, what they're saying is, so the wildfires that happened prior to this over the summer, uh, to give people an idea. So this past summer of 2021, I think they calculated 1,634 wildfires in BC alone. And that meant 869,209 hectares of land burnt, just burnt to crisp. That's a lot. And then you turn around and to comparatively put it in perspective, the year before in 2020, which we also knew was full of wildfires, right? Um, mm-hmm. It had only 670 fires in comparison and 14,536 hectares of land. So if you think 2020 was not a great year for wildfires or whatever as it is, and then you look to 2021, it's like, wow, oh my God, what a difference, right? So it's, it tells you how yeah. dire it is. But having all this, all these fires and the dry, like, because the summer was so dry, right? It was dry here, it was dry there, it was dry everywhere in the, the Western hemisphere here, pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. So that, between the burning and the drying, it forms a, a crust on the surface of the soil. And that actually is detrimental to the water being able to be absorbed because it forms this barrier. So instead of the water being able to soak in, like we keep talking about with all of our, uh, our biochars and our building our soils and everything. So now people know how the soil can act as a sponge if it's in the right state. But even with these somewhat natural things going on, like the fires, um, although excessive fires, but it can form a barrier so that your soil can absorb the water. And so what happens? It all just starts flowing off. And because the rain was so excessive, like they are saying 200 to 300% higher than normal. Um, and we know how much no, that's water. Crazy. Yeah. And we know how much rain BC can get anyway. Right. So it's like even more so, but because of that, so the water's got nowhere to go. It's just going to flow downhill and it's going to do it at a rapid rate. So what is it going to do? It's going to pull everything with it. So that's where, all the mudslides are happening. You're getting uh, dead vegetation getting ripped out of the ground because it's not being held in very well. So you're getting all these like roots, logs, whatever. And um, it's, it's making it very unstable, very dangerous. And also any of where it starts pooling, that water is now very uh, filthy. Like it's, it's going to have a lot of sediment and everything in it, which um, in excessive amounts is, is not good either. Like we're going to see effects on the fish and the wildlife, like all things, it's going to snowball, right? Like there's going to be on onward yeah. effects for, for quite a while to come. Um, and even, uh, I think it was the CBC that was saying, so usually after a forest fire within two years or, or more, there's new vegetation growing and, it's now you've got ground cover and so you don't it reduces that effect of the the ground not being able to absorb the water but the one of the problems we're having is because there it's it's not enough time for the uh, woodland to regenerate in between these fires all you're getting are some of the superficial like the grasses and the forbs moving in the trees don't have enough time to grow and then it gets burnt again so it just or keeps it gets this, drowned out like <laughs> yeah so it just keeps the cyclical effect of um it's just leaching the, the ground when it gets flooded and everything gets washed out things can't get reestablished. so it's getting to a point they're thinking without human intervention of replanting the trees and the other things mother nature just is not going to be able to get things going right um they're even saying 
the roots of the dead or burnt trees, they might help initially to hold some of the ground, but then they too are going to decompose. And once that happens, you're going to get, uh, after longer term, more residual, like the, the mudslides and the erosion too. So people need to be aware that after the initial panic subsides and they're, you know, cleaning up everything and getting back to whatever they think normal life is, there could be a secondary uh, cascade of all this stuff happening because of these things decomposing and stuff too. So it's just, it's crazy. It's just on and on and on. Um, yeah. And I think that's where, like, like you were just saying that, you know, the, these things are going to be happening more frequently. And like, I think already where they're talking about another big rain event coming up pretty soon. I don't know if, when that was supposed to happen or if it already happened, but yeah, well, anyways, they've, they've like, evacuated yeah. Abbotsford and all those places in preparation. Well, I mean, lots of it's underwater already, but in preparation of another, yet another one. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, like I think, and I don't know how you do about it on <laughs> such a large scale of all the affected areas, but learning how to do a massive rehabilitation of that area with all these different factors that we kind of talked about with like, okay, how do we improve the stability of it? Okay. Well, we have to start planting more trees and actually let them, you know, flourish for more than a year before yeah, another big event comes in. And of course, like you can go all the way back to <laughs> tackling climate change, but that's such a big thing to tackle head on and to, you know, target specifically for the area of BC. So it's trying to do things a little bit closer to home and, but still do that on a large scale. I think it's going to be a lot of people trying to uh, work together to try to get that done. And I honestly, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how, how we're going to do that. Like, I mean, cause while BC gets all these floods and stuff, I mean, here in Alberta, we're, I mean, everywhere around the world, we're dealing with these crazy weather events and it's, yeah. How do we. Well, I think the, the key is probably, um, a combination effort. So instead of focusing on just one thing saying, you know, it's the trees are the cure or uh, reducing emissions is the cure. It's going to be combination cumulative effects. So the more different things we can do that have an effect on a positive effect on climate change, do it right. That's one thing is, is just do mm -hmm. as many of those different things as you can. The other thing is I know it's very depressing to think these things are, are so large and um, there's so much uh, natural force behind all this kind of stuff. You figure, oh, I'm one little person. What can I do? But I think the key there is you're right. Like one person or a group of people are, are not going to be enough to solve the issue of climate change. However, if everybody does something, you know, the power of lots of little things built up into large numbers now can have more of an impact. I'm still not sure if we can actually stop climate change. I think that part is probably inevitable because like I say, there, there has been this natural cyclical thing going on way before, like the, through the dinosaurs before us since, since the earth was born basically. But um, if we can do enough to slow it down to a point where mother nature can cope and adapt and balance it out, then we might be <laughs> entitled to live here a little bit longer because that's the other the other thing right um the earth i'm fairly confident will go on with or without us but the the, the nature of of humans and animals in general is survival right so you want to do whatever you can to, to have your species survive it's a little bit selfish but it's it's a normal thing so um of course it's going to be normal for us to say well 
you know, we don't want to become extinct as a species, even if other animals will go on to survive and possibly become the next dominant species on the planet. So, of course, it's natural for us to want to do whatever we can to mitigate that. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as we just choo choose things a little more carefully um, and learn from our, our past mistakes, right? So, but I think that's, those, those two things are the key is to do as many different things that combat climate change as possible. And also, um, don't be afraid to do little things because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big undertaking. So just do something, doing something is better than doing nothing. And that's where I think, like you say, do things close to, to home, support the local, um, whether it's switching over your energy sources, whether you're getting a few plants and planting them, uh, whether you're changing your farming practices, uh, whatever it is, uh, even things like shopping local for your groceries and things so that you're reducing that carbon print of the logistics of shipping stuff, wh whatever. But just mm -hmm. do as many of those little things as you can as a person, as your family, as your little group. They will have more of an impact than if everybody throws up their hands and says, that's it, we're, we can't do anything, so I give up, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because we can't give up. I'm glad that we're working in the businesses that we're working in right now, because even though we've been finding it a struggle through COVID and everything else, um, there's the potential to do so much good out there and help the world help so many, even if it's in our, just our local little bubble, right? So we can at least feel mm -hmm. good about that. And then the big thing again is just getting the word out there to people um, to show them that, you know, you don't have to spend millions of dollars. You don't have to invest a lot of effort. Um, but just some simple things like, you know, rescaping your, your own little yard or, or even doing some container gardening. Uh, there's, there's a lot of little things that you can do that will make a difference over time. So. Yeah. Like I even say to people, like kind of tying it into all the work that we do, like, you know, if you're, a residential owner and you've kind of been thinking about doing something more sustainable with your yard just you know pick a just to get things started and it, it goes a long way just do a square meter by square meter uh little thing of you know plants that maybe you've seen or that once you kind of get talking to us or something figuring out like oh we kind of like how these ones kind of look in our yard like just kind of start with that and that brings so many benefits that we've talked about in other episodes uh, for mm -hmm. when you introduce native plants and the idea of regenerative landscape uh, methodology into uh, urban areas, that there's so many benefits for that. So even just starting with something as simple as a square meter by square meter um, plot of native plants or plants that are at least better for <laughs> yeah. better for the environment than uh, some conventional ones, maybe. For sure. And I Stuff think that actually cool. that's, that's a great way of putting it. Um, if if people just pick a ch choose a certain size or space that they have that they they can handle just do that to start with and then you know see how things go and then and build it up from there um something else i really hope that we can do this summer i know kevin was talking about wanting to make videos and everything uh, i do as well it's just the whole time consuming shooting stuff editing and whatever cuz even with the equipment the templates it's not quite as simple as just pushing a button but um I would like us to get out to a variety of places, um, whether it's some of the parks that um, have been native scape years before, people's yards. 
uh, people's container gardens and just do a kind of a, a time lapse of what, even if it's a description because we didn't have the footage or anything, but um, of how it started, what it, what state it was in when it started, how it's been evolving, what it looks like now, how it's going now. And that way we can actually visibly show people the difference that it makes and what happens along the progress of it. Because, you know, we get, we do get these walls with people of, oh, yeah, well, you know, I got, I planted native plants, but I got weeds or, or whatever. And they don't realize that it's not just to snap your fingers and walk away. There's a bit of a maintenance to start with, but it does get easier over time. Or they figure, well, geez, how is this going to help? I only planted so many plants in this space or whatever. And they don't notice um, how things gradually happen over time. And maybe in three years, now they have butterflies and birds and things that they didn't really notice were moving in because they're seeing it all the time. But if you see the kind of beginning to end picture, you get more out of it. Um, like I know out at our, our family farm, um, we haven't even done a lot out there yet other than trying to, you know, keep some of the farming activity out of certain areas and let it regenerate naturally. And um, when I go out there seed collecting, I'll throw some stuff down or whatever. And we we let the, the beavers do their thing. We let the wildlife do its thing. And it's interesting. Um, the difference now, like the hunting season, everybody wants to come out and hunt on Steve's dad's place because the animals all have shelter there. They all have food there. Like there's, there's a really healthy herd of elk that live through there. Um, lots of deer. Like these are the kind of things, like whether you hunt or you're a nature lover or whatever, um, this helps grow and populate the wildlife. It like the the soil. The difference in the soil from the farm part to the non-farm part is unbelievable. Like it's so um, deep and loamy and soft on the more native side. And nothing against the farmer; he's doing a really good job of of maintaining his part. But because he's he's basically just growing hay, um, it's 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 basically a few species, and it was tilled under in order to plant and everything else. It's it's not bad, like it's not as bad as monoculture, but if, if there was other things added to that, it would be so much better, right? But you can just see the difference. And so hopefully um, farmers and, you know, homeowners, uh, commercial businesses, everybody in the spectrum, um, if we can show and, and they can start to see, it's not just do it because it's the good thing to do, but there's real scientific, valuable reasons to do it and reasons that will benefit businesses, farmers, and people on an individual level even, right? If it's going to help the climate change or even your personal space, like just feeling a little happier and seeing more stuff around you is, uh, it's a stress reducer and a, a kind of a feel good thing and just on a personal level too, right? So, but uh, yeah, hopefully we can do some sort of project like that over the summer and go from location to location and just um, focus on specific areas and show people the the before the when it's when it was native plant and then planted and then as it's going along and what the progression is now what it looks like and I'm sure uh, people will see a huge difference some of them can be really spectacular because you can you can also shape them to be a little bit more of an artistic piece too. It doesn't have to be just this wild strewn. Here's a whole bunch of stuff because that's what people start to 
um, imagine this whole weedy wild thing, right? And yeah, some stuff can be like that, but it also can be very architecturally designed and, and very pleasant to see um, on a more formal kind of gardening scope as well. So you can replace a lot of these uh, foreign imported plants and these manicured yards with natives, but still do it in a way that you have a bit of control over and can make it look uh, aesthetically pleasing oh, to you. Yeah. yeah. So Yeah, because, I mean, there's so many species that are used uh, kind of in, um, currently like in conventional landscaping that yeah, there's there's a lot of native plant equivalents. Yeah, so I, I feel that too, that there's, a, there's almost a substitute for everything that's out there. I'm, Mother Nature is ingenious the way all around the world she has all the same... Uh, medicines and colors and qualities but there's duplicates of almost everything it's just in a different species in a different zone or something right so that's i think that's pretty cool mm -hmm. um which uh it's almost like a segue into my uh plant adventure guide which is goldenrod um which at one point i had a way for it to tie into all that stuff that was happening in bc and everything and now i forgot <laughs> how but that's okay I'm sure that our listeners will figure it out. Um, it also uh, reminds me too, another one of the things that, uh, that came up when I was looking at the, the BC flooding and the, the fires and all that is uh, there happens to be a, a, a farmer who does cover cropping and he's been finding he doesn't have half the issues that a lot of the places around him are having because with the cover crop, it's stopping the erosion. It's allowing more of the water to absorb in. Um, it's, you know, it's helping offset a lot of these things. So his farm is actually doing better than a lot of them just because of the, the cover cropping. So, you know, more reasons to, to use regenerative farming tactics with your, with your farms as well. Um, but mm -hmm. anyway, uh, back to my plant, I was going to talk about goldenrod today. Um, and there, I guess there's a couple of reasons. One is... Uh, because it's one of the latest blooming uh, native flowers that we have, it was one of the last things I thought of before the snow covered everything because there were still dried up stalks and seed heads and everything on the goldenrod right up until it snowed. So um, that was one reason. And another is because there's a, another uh, well-known gardener aficionado out there, uh, Mark Cullen. Uh, he's got a gardening show and gardening... Uh, blogs and like he's he's one of the big uh, gardening gurus in Canada um, and I came across an article that he'd written uh, kind of comparing goldenrod as the new um, milkweed <laughs> and I was like what and then when I started reading I was like oh yeah that kind of makes sense so initially milkweed was considered like the name says a weed uh, it didn't have this whole nice persona around it associated with the monarch butterflies and all this kind of stuff and then um as the scientists started finding out that it was one of the favored foods by the monarch butterfly it started to shift and gain popularity and with the with the masses and everything and now people are actively seeking out various milkweeds to plant and to to grow to support the butterflies and everything right and uh so mark collins saying the the goldenrod should be the new milkweed and i'm kind of like yeah you know what i agree because a lot of people have a bad uh 
view on goldenrod because number one, they think it causes allergies. And I know, Dan, um, you go through periods of allergies from different things. Oh, and, don't call uh, me out on it. <laughs> don't call me out on uh, I'm a anyway. strong man that has no allergies. Definitely didn't pick the wrong profession. <laughs> no. Well, you just, you just fight through it, right? Uh, take your... Uh, take lots of drugs. Yeah. Take your antihistamines and you're good to go. But, um, but, but yeah, yeah it doesn't cause hay fever. That's the thing is everybody keeps thinking, oh, it's one of the big allergy causes. Goldenrod, um, other than having the same color as uh, the ragweed, which is, is the big allergy causer, uh, that's mm-hmm. about all it's got in common with it. So it's, it's actually has pollen that's too heavy and sticky to blow up in the wind, really, and cause allergies, which also... Yeah, I mean, it's- yeah, these insects you, and yeah, other that's why that that's why with it being around, so yeah. with it being so heavy, that's why it's up to the insects, the bees, the butterflies, the everything to pollinate it because it's not wind pollinated. It's too heavy to to be spread around that way. So I'm like, heh, take that, you allergy accusers. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, goldenrod has a genus that includes like a hundred to hundred twenty different uh, flowering plants in the aster family. So again, the aster family is a huge family and just the goldenrod genus is huge. Um, most of them are native to North America. I remember we were, we were talking, I don't remember wh- which episode, but it was interesting, a different perspective when Kevin brought up that somebody in China that he knew or something uh, was growing some uh, non-native goldenrod on their deck and it was spreading around or whatever. Um, and yet here it's like, oh yeah, I love goldenrod and everything. So it's, you know, right plant, right place. It's, if it's not native, we don't really want to support that because there's many reasons why it may not fit in as well or may overtake a place or be cause destruction or whatever. But in its native habitat, it's made for that. It's supposed to be doing its thing out here, right? Um, mm-hmm. In Alberta alone, we've, I, I don't know exactly what the number is, but we've got to have at least five or six species in Alberta alone. Um, yeah, I was trying to find how many we have here and I couldn't find a definite answer. But yeah, like, I mean, just the ones that we've dealt with, like, yeah, I would, I would say at least five, five or more species that we have that are different. And also the tricky thing about uh, goldenrods, because there's so many various species, what you said, 100, 120, I even saw the 140, but um, that because there's so many different species that it can crossbreed very yes, easily too. Hybridized and I think too. that's and that's, I think that's just kind of a general uh, thing with the uh, asters, just because within the aster family, there's just so yeah. many species that can crossbreed and yeah, you get all these different hybrids. And that's why it was always tricky for us, uh, especially yeah. when goldenrods were, when we were growing them, when trying to they ID were them, yeah. little, trying to ID <laughs> them just because, yeah, oh, we think that it's, you know, giant goldenrod or um, Canada goldenrod, but uh, when it's so tiny and then suddenly get, like until you see the seed head um, sometimes or you yeah. get more of the stems and leaf blades coming out that like um, yeah you don't <laughs> you don't exactly know what it is for it's sure. like that willow Unless, syndrome oh the willows we hate trying to ID willows because it gets so crazy with all the hybrid IDs. oh I mean I, I'd rather ID <laughs> a goldenrod over a willow because yeah. but but willows. yeah um, so we do have well obviously hence the name we've got Canada goldenrod um, it's probably one of our most widespread ones that spreads rhizomatous, rhizomatous, uh, as well as through seed, um, as well as like what Dan was saying, the giant goldenrod. Um, quite often they get mixed up because they're both larger and spreading type goldenrods. So you have to 
do some serious looking to get the little details to determine the differences. Um, then we've got, it's, it's called Prairie or Missouri goldenrod. And a lot of these times these names are kind of misnomers because it usually means the first place they were discovered. It doesn't mean that's where they come from. So Missouri goldenrod, also called Prairie goldenrod, is native to Alberta. It's not just Missouri. Um, there's one that I haven't dealt with yet, but it's called Alpine or Northern goldenrod, also scientific name Solidago multiradiata. That one I'm not as familiar with, but apparently that one's in Alberta. Uh, there's also a mountain goldenrod, which I'm still trying to decide if some of mine are younger um, prairie Missouri goldenrods or if they are this uh, Solidago simplex because um, they look very similar when they're little. Um, we've also got uh, Solidago rigida, which is hence the scientific name rigid or stiff goldenrod. Um, there's another one. I'm trying to decide whether we've got some of this mixed up in, in what we've got. Uh, it's called velvety goldenrod, solidago mollus. And I'm like, hmm, cause some of our, some of the ones that look like they should be solidago rigida or stiff goldenrod are also that very velvety leaf feeling. So I'm like, well, then are you actually mollus or are you a hybrid or like what's going on here? I don't know. But anyway, um, that's another one there. And then we've got one that's actually quite different from the others. It's got thinner, grassy kind of leaves, and it's called grass-leaved goldenrod. Uh, makes that easy to, to figure that out. Um, but you also got tall, some, right? What's that? Well, you also tall, got tall, tall, late, and giant, as far as I know, are all considered the same one. That's all oh, they go gigantia. Okay. And this is where the scientific names are handy because there's a lot of common names for the same plant. But that being said, we do know how some of the scientific names change too. And then that gets a little confusing. But um, or that you is get what, variations within the yes. <laughs> one species hmm. name. And it's just, well, that, I mean, kind of going back to my fescue thing, like rough fescue, uh, our provincial grass is called rough fescue and it's got the. Um, um, something. <laughs> Yes. Why can't I pull it up? Uh, Festuca. Is that the camp? Al camp? Oh. Altaica. That's Altaica. Different. Yeah. Alt is rough fescue, but then subspecies is scabrella. So it's like umbrella. Ella. Ella. No. Sorry. So anyways, yeah, it's just like it does. It does get questions. complicated trying to just categorize all these things. Um, yeah. And then, of course, just when I'm about to say. Yeah, well, one distinguishing factor that all the um, goldenrod family has is that they've all got the uh, the upper yellow flowers. And then, dun dun, dun I find out um, this one I don't think exists in Alberta, but farther east, um, like central and eastern Canada, we've got uh, upland white goldenrod. <laughs> so guess what? It's white. <laughs> I'm like, so, ah, great. so I'm like, okay, I can't move to any other provinces because I can't be confused. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, it's a very diverse species. Like you say, it hybridized stuff, which is probably why it's able to get into so many different environments, but um, different goldenrods will, will do quite well in different environments depending on the, the species. So we've got ones that will live in the wet, ones that will live in the open on the prairie, ones that live in the woodlands. Um, 
size, you know, lots of variety, variety in size from really small, only like six centimeters tall up to ones that are over a meter tall. What's cool about this one is it's a very versatile plant if you're doing landscaping uh, for larger reclamation per- purposes, like uh, big, if you're doing acres and acres of uh, oil and gas reclamation or something like that, things like our uh, our Canada goldenrod work well because it spreads. That one might, you might not want that in your yard because it's a little more not aggressive and spreads a lot, right? <laughs> might just but, overtake and suddenly you have this big thing of yeah. just yellow and maybe you didn't but want that. In, but in your yard or a container garden even, that's where some of these other ones that are a little bit more polite, I call them. So they're not rhizomatic spreaders and they're more of a clumper. Um, so this is where your um, uh, your prairie or Missouri goldenrod would come in handy, possibly uh, the, the grass leaf goldenrod or um, the stiff goldenrod, maybe this velvety goldenrod. Um, so... It, it, there's there's one of them that will fit whatever bill you've got. So, you know, just let us know what kind of a place you've got. We've got a goldenrod for that. Um, and, the, of course, it, like I said before, they can be invasive in areas they are not native to, hence China, Europe, Africa, Japan, etc. So this is also a good reason why don't start taking seeds of stuff on the plane with you to take home or something because you think it's cute, regardless of which direction you're traveling, because you don't know what kind of can of worms you're going to be opening. Um, <clears throat> we have, uh, well, obviously it's a great pollinator plant, especially for, for late season uh, feeding, because at that time a lot of the other plants aren't uh, blooming anymore. And so for your bees and, and your other insects that are going to be hungry still, uh, especially if the weather's good like it was it was pretty nice really late into the season this year and without having those late pollinating plants um a lot of our bees and stuff probably would have gone quite hungry mm-hmm. um what's interesting on a commercial level for for honey production ripening pure goldenrod honey is actually pretty rank like it stinks it it, it tastes bad it's ugh. but once it's um totally cured once it's finished Goldenrod honey is actually quite nice. It's very mild and uh, nice tasting. Um, goldenrod, the it's usually the upper parts of the plant that are used for medicinal or, or edible purposes, uh, but it makes a nice sweet naturally, like a naturally sweetened um, tasting tea. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're not wanting to add sweeteners to a tea, try adding some goldenrod or using it neat on its own. It's been used medicinally for a lot of like uh, bladder and kidney issues. Part of that is because it seems to have diuretic uh, functions to it. So that means just like coffee or tea or other things that are considered diuretics, it just means it flushes stuff out of your system more frequently. Um, so you so you do want to obviously drink more water if you're using something like this medicinally so you don't get dehydrated, but it can flush out your system as well. Um, it also has probably some anti-inflammatory um, effects, which is another reason why it could help with bladder and kidney issues. Uh, the, I guess the big thing is there's there's some, some research that's been done, but a lot of it's been with rats and whatnot. So they need to take it that next step and, and figure out more of how it works with people. So they've got a really good handle on it. But there have been studies done that um, uh, it could possibly suppress growth of cancer cells with uh, prostate cancers and like specific kinds of cancers 
if if injected with goldenrod because that's what they've been doing with studies with uh, test tubes and, and rats and stuff. Um, but yeah, they'll need to do more studying with that to find out for sure. Um, for a non-medicinal use, I love telling this story. Every time I've got a workshop or something, I tell everybody the story because it's just so cool. So Thomas Edison, um, of course, the light bulb and everything else, but he's also done a lot of other stuff. And one of them is he had a fascination with commercial applications of plants. And so he discovered goldenrod produces latex. Um, and actually going back to the allergy thing, so some people that are allergic to latex, now they might have an allergic reaction to goldenrod, but it'd be different than the ragweed one. Um, but anyway, he, he developed a, a specific strain of goldenrod that produced a higher level of latex. Still nothing compared to the rubber trees and stuff in the tropics, but for here, you know, it, these are something that grow locally, right? So anyway, he uh, developed this rubber and gifted it to his friend Henry Ford, who, as we know, was developing vehicles. So Henry Ford turned around and he gifted Thomas Edison a Model T complete with goldenrod tires, even though other rubbers and, and everything came along that were more efficient and less costly produce, it is still pretty cool that I can go, hey, you see that goldenrod out there? You can make tires from that. <laughs> it's, like, it's pretty cool. That and I always I wonder, mean, everybody, everybody says the whole, like they say, oh, there's a hot rod, right? I'm wondering if originally it was like a goldenrod. There's a goldenrod and then it just became hot rod. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just something to think about. Hmm. Sorry, what were you going to say, Dan? Uh, I already forgot what I was ah, going to say. Oh, no, no, yeah. I was just going to say, like, yeah, if I had a, if I was gifted a goldenrod car from uh, Ford, I'd definitely uh, be flaunting it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so let's cool. burn rubber. Let's burn goldenrod. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm just, I have all these visions in my head of how this would happen. But, um, but yeah, no, I think that's pretty cool. As I mentioned before, for, for humans, it's, it's good in teas and baking. Um, I've actually made goldenrod uh, bread, cornbread before. Oh, and, uh, so good. I've been fine tuning that process and I can make gold, golden bread. Jeez, I can't even say it. Goldenrod golden cornbread muffins and stuff um, that uh, are turned out pretty good. So, so yeah, uh, it's something that's commonly found in a lot of the areas. So might as well use it. Um, at one point, I was a little bit leery of having it around my horses because I'd heard from a lot of people. They're like, ah, goldenrod's, goldenrod's poisonous to horses and everything. So this is why you should do your research. So here's what I found. And people can correct me if I'm wrong. But this is what I found from reputable scientific sources. So talk about confusing. There's a plant called Rayless goldenrod which is not a goldenrod. It's uh, Isocoma pluriflora, I think. A uh, common name is also jimmyweed or goldenbush. Um, it's not even found in Alberta. It's more southern and northern Mexico and stuff. Anyway, that one has definitely got toxins in it that uh, it doesn't even take very much and it can kill your horse. And I'm wondering if people just associate the name goldenrod thinking, oh my God, we've got goldenrods up here. So it's terrible, blah. That maybe that's where well, it also all this just, came from. And it also looks pretty. Like I could see somebody getting confused. It, it by does it. have it's yellow and everything, right? And it's got that multiple flowery top kind of thing to it. But yeah, it is interesting because 
then I've got other sources where you look up goldenrod uses for horses and, and same thing. They're talking about uh, medicinally and all this kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Adding goldenrod to your horse's diet is great. So then I'm like, ah, I'm so confused. But now, like I say, I, I'm thinking this rayless goldenrod is not in the same family. It looks a bit like it, it grows somewhere else. Um, so I'm kind of leaning towards, okay, our goldenrods are probably okay for our horses. And it's this rayless goldenrod. That's the, the poisonous culprit. Um, but by all means, definitely check it out with your, your veterinarian or some, somebody of scientific repute before you pass judgment. So, but, uh, I thought that was interesting. Oh yeah. And then as far as, uh, the wildlife goes, um, again, to get some biodiversity in, in your, whether it's a yard or something larger, um, our goldfinches, it's funny, they're already yellow. They must, this whole yellow thing must be a thing or something. It's like, we'll blend in if we eat the stuff that's the same color as us. I don't know. Anyway, uh, goldfinches really like uh, goldenrod seed, uh, prairie chickens, and some grouse. Uh, different bird species will, will eat a certain amount of even the leaf vegetation when other things get depleted. Deer have been known to browse on it a little, but it's one of those things they'll do it when they're hungry, but they'd rather eat other stuff. But regardless, it does create more habitat for the wildlife. And definitely, wow, the, the pollinators. Um, I saw a, just a, a big patch of it uh, out by, I think it was by Hass Lake. I think by Hass Lake. And there was tons of those, um, uh, I can't remember what the scientific name is, but we call them police police butterflies or police moths or whatever. And they're basically black and white splotted and they're just covering the goldenrod. They just loved it. Um, a lot of the uh, uh, butterfly species will actually uh, lay their eggs inside the stems and then they, they make those galls. Um, you may have seen oh, them. Yeah, like, yeah. like the same sort of thing on, on some of the roses and the, and the willows and stuff, but this is on the stem of the, of the goldenrod. But as a kind of a, another step in that cycle um then you have animals like the woodpeckers will actually eat the larva out of those galls and you also have parasitic wasps that will lay their eggs in those galls because then they're obviously a young hatch out and eat the caterpillars so there's this whole circle of life thing like so many animals all all relate back to the goldenrod so it's a a very cool plant i mm-hmm. say um, I don't know if you have anything else to add to it. Yeah, I was kind of looking at some info on it too. Apparently it's Nebraska state flower or specifically Saldego gigantica, giant goldenrod is uh, Nebraska state flower. And what else? Um, and then apparently there is looking at the plan ID book. They talked about how uh, during the American Revolution, uh, goldenrod was used as a substitute for English tea because they're running out of right. um, supplies for English tea. So they use goldenrod instead. So I thought that was kind of yeah. interesting too. Well, I got to say, like I've, I've had it as a tea. And I mean, I'm one of these people that because I don't drink coffee, I do drink a lot of tea. So I drink a lot of different teas. And so I do everything from drinking them plain to having some sweetener to having some cream to whatever all across the board. And goldenrod is one of the ones that I would I would rather just drink it plain, drink it neat because it's it's got a little bit of sweetness all on its own. You don't need anything else with it. 
and it, it just has a nice uh, smell and taste to it completely on its own. Um, that's why I was, I was kind of surprised to find out that the honey, until it's completely cured, actually smells and tastes pretty horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it just means don't judge a book by its cover. Right time, right place. So yeah, yeah. So that'd be our goldenrod. Yeah. And then as far as I know, I think that's, that's all we have for this episode. And then uh, hopefully next time we'll get into the, uh, the fencing and the hunters and the farmers scenario. Cause that's, that's something we've been kind of experiencing as of late. Cause like I say, we've been out hunting at the family farm and stuff. So it's uh, brought up a whole bunch of stuff. So very cool. So right. when can we come and uh, get the meat? Oh yeah. Well, Hey, um, actually the, we, well, we sent a couple into the uh, Sandy View farms. They're going to, to butcher it for us, but we've got one here that we're uh, possibly going to be butchering tonight. Come on down. I will show you how. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, um, everybody out there, take care. Uh, consider the people out West that are, battling these floods and everything right now as well as what's close to home and uh you know i know we can't all save the world but just do our little part in our little corner of the world and it will uh all help to, to make the world a bit better place all right we'll talk to you next time Landscapes.